Welcome, everyone, to the latest, greatest episode of the Network Age. I'm here, as always, with my handsome co-host, Nil Run Mardux. And back from the dead, we have Tim Luck Miftev joining us for an extra special episode. So, boys, thank you for joining me. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, uh, this is uh, an episode I've really been looking forward to. Today, we're going to have on Jake Bruckman, uh, founder, CEO of CoinFund, an engineer, an investor, a really smart guy. And we're going to be talking about... AI and some some work he's been doing there, and it's you know obviously incredibly timely. Yeah, Jake's done some really cool stuff in terms of pushing the limits of chat of like GPT four and seeing what it can do as this kind of thing that can interpret almost this kind of weird boundary between programming languages and humans saying stuff. And I think he also just has like you know some great insights into you know Web three in general and how it can be used here, and then just you know general computing. So. I hope the sound guy can get this one out soon enough after we do it that uh, the world will still exist and you can all listen to it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's hope so. If not, you know, we'll go to whichever afterlife we do or do not believe in. Tell everyone how good the pod was. Exactly, exactly. Like yeah, guys, it was fine. It was fine. It was just picking up steam, you know, man. Yeah. Like ah, oh, it was a good pod. But um, yeah, for me, just like Jake, you know, Coin Fund raised three hundred million last year to invest in Web three. I think it's really interesting to see how like Web three is now kind of intersecting with AI, how we can leverage AI within Web three, and how Web three kind of potentially might you know draw out um, and kind of safeguard AI against this sort of doomer future that we're scared about. So yeah, I mean, from that perspective, and also he's just you know he's a great Urbit bull. He's mm-hmm. got really good takes, and I'd love to see kind of how he thinks Urbit kind of fits into this broader AI future that we're heading towards. Yeah, and I think we're going we're gonna to get into all that, plus, you know, a, the personal AI, the intersection of Urbit and AI, and how Jake has been using things like chat, GPT, not only in a professional context, but to augment his, his daily life. And, you know, we're going to hit it all here. So I think it's going to be a really great episode, great guest, and we look forward to having you along for the ride. Okay, welcome back to the Network Age, and we'd we'd like to welcome our guest, Jake Bruckman, also Rancher Tapper on Urbit. He is the founder and CEO of CoinFund, an engineer, technologist, investor, all-around big brain, and uh, we're here to talk to him about AI. So, uh, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Um, thank you so much for having me. I know this is going to be a good one. Yeah, yeah. We're excited to have you on quickly before the singularity happens. So we knew we had to rush this one in. That <laughs> <laughs> last part before the singularity. They could be gentler on us if we say good things. The final episode. <laughs> well, I think I, before we, we get into this, I think I'd just love to give you an opportunity to talk about how you, you got into AI and the, the crypto space or technology in general. Um, because you've, you've been involved for a long time. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I'm a pretty nerdy like tech guy. Actually, I'm pretty like dual brain, so I've done a lot of math and tech and also art and music and things like that. But basically, like my mom and dad are both engineers. You know, they were worked on Wall Street for many years. They were kind of like that first wave of programmers in the 90s that went to work on Wall Street. We had a Sun workstation in our house in, like, 1991. Um, Learned how to code C when I was 14, you know, that kind of thing. So I've been a pretty early adopter of technology throughout my life. Computers, Internet, mobile. Uh, These days I drive an electric vehicle. Um, 
but uh, there was also crypto somewhere in there. I, uh, I got my first Bitcoin in 2011. Um, wow. So, <laughs> been, yeah, yeah, I had a, I, lo- I love to tell this story because I had a good friend of mine from school, basically. Uh, he was a bit of a hacker. He showed me Bitcoin in like, I don't know, April or something of 2011. And I kind of didn't get it. I tried to mine it. My laptop like conked out. <laughs> I was like, what is this crap? Um, but then I knew what it was and I started following it on, on Twitter, which eventually led me to um, buy a little bit of Bitcoin on Coinbase at the end of 2013 as it was going up to that 1200 mark, that really like big run up the first time. Um, then that led me to Ethereum. Um, I started CoinFund in July, actually June, really, of, of 2015. Uh, we actually mined some of the first blocks on the Ethereum Frontier Network back in those days on a mining rig that I built in my apartment in Brooklyn. Um, and what else? Oh, the funny part of that story was that I went back to my friend in 2017, the guy who showed me Bitcoin, and I said, Will, you must be like a Bitcoin billionaire by now. <laughs> and he goes... Bitcoin? What's Bitcoin doing? I haven't looked at it since 2011. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, I, well, then he got into it then. Yeah, I, I, it's still a good time to get into it. Um, well, I, I think let's let's not bury the lead here, Jake. You've been doing some really interesting work with uh, on AI and chat GPT and um, getting some attention for the work you've you've been doing with jargon and things like that. So I'd love for you to just uh, tell us tell us what you were doing and uh, why you think it's interesting. Well, maybe why other people are thinking it's interesting because it certainly has garnered some attention. Absolutely. And let me just caveat with, with saying that like I am by no means an AI expert. I know enough math and computer science to know about neural networks, how they work and all this stuff. But, um, you know, AI is kind of a more of an enthusiast feel for me. But what I was working on the other day with GPT-4 was solving a very practical problem for myself. So I live in Miami. I live in a neighborhood here where almost nobody speaks English. Um, There's a lot of Cubans here. Mm. And I'm learning Spanish. And the thing about Spanish is that it's pretty easy to get to a certain level. Um, But the really hard part is like actually forming... As, as in any language, right? Just forming sentences and making sense and being grammatically correct. And really, like, the easiest way to, you know, brush up your skills, like, in that area is to have a native speaker who is, like, always correcting you when you say something wrong. And my idea was, like, can I program, essentially, chat GPT um, to have a conversation with me in Spanish? And whenever I would make a grammatical error, it would, like, correct me and tell me, like, why it's poor and not para or like whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever grammar rule you know, violated, right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so, and so I did that. I just like wrote a prompt. I wrote it out in English and I was like, you know, now let's have a conversation. It was actually working. It was amazing. And I posted about it on Twitter. It, you know, it was like a popular tweet. People found it useful. They started to um, purpose it for German and, and French and like other languages and stuff. And then someone was like, Hey, you know, you should really add a, a score uh, keeping facility to this. So you know how many like, you know, things you got right, how many things you got wrong. And as features started pouring in the query to do this bot became like bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And it got to a point where it just stopped like working well. It would just really get confused. It would say, okay, now you tell me a sentence, you know, and I'll translate it. Um, and like, it just got like really confused about its flow. And this gave me an idea. I was like, why, why don't we have some kind of programming language where it creates a little bit more structure than just saying it, you know, saying the prompt in English you get a little bit more like flow control, you know, that instructions happen one after the other. You can have if statements, you can have a loop. And if I could just have that very, very basic flow control, I could make this bot work really well and in theory. And so I tried this and I created like the first version of what I then called a pseudo language, which is basically a prompt to GPT that specifies like this fictional hypothetical language that says, okay, we have, you know, if statements and instructions uh, and we have loops and here's how that works. And if you write this out as like a little pseudocode computer program, um, you know, you'll get that flow control. But the beauty of it is, is that you can still program the thing in English, in, in natural language. And so I started working on this and we're in version like, I don't know, there's like 12 tags or something. Um and, you know, you can, you can write programs. The thing has unit tests that it can run to test the various features of the language. Um, it has a debugger. Like, if you, <laughs> if, you write, um, if you write debug, then, um, you know, it'll actually go, like, line for line. But, um, yeah, so... <clears throat> So that's what jargon is. Yeah, awesome. So I, I just want to clarify for our listeners because you used uh, you said in your first prompt you you know I was going to program Chat GPT to do this, but you did that first request for your Spanish teacher entirely in natural language, as you would speak to an actual Spanish teacher or someone someone right next to you, and we're already getting pretty significant and useful results before the thing fell apart on you. Yeah, I mean that's like. For for someone who has pretty limited programming knowledge, that's that feels already crazy and exciting that something like that is accessible. But you found that as you went deeper, you still did need to create these extra controls, uh, like a sort of as you called like a, a flow chart system, something a little bit more rigorous to to move this forward. And I'm I'm curious as you were building this, what um what difficulties you were running into? Like, what, the, what were the stopping points? Or did ChatGPT seem to be able to take what you threw, threw at it and just adjust and move forward? Well, okay, so there's some, like, very interesting features of language, and they also make it really crazy, right? So, so one, one interesting feature is that the language is not, like, a normal programming language formally specified, right? So, for example, there's no... Um, there, there's no sort of like axiom in the definition of the language that says like, here's a variable, here's how you set a variable, you know, here's how you read the value of a variable, here's how a variable works in a, in a quotation or in a piece of, like in a string, right? And yet GPT just sort of knows that if you write like dollar sign X equals, you're, you're setting a variable. And this is kind of amazing because it's sort of like learned it from the general body of knowledge that it has of programming languages, and so you can kind of, we call it in jargon, like divination, like you sort of divine that <laughs> the user just means, the user just means like set a variable and use the value later. And it works. And that's like amazing. 
And another like really crazy feature of the language is that, you know, the, in, like, um, the scope of, of data that your program looks at is actually like the entire prompt um, that came before in your session with GPT. And so everything in that prompt is able to be referenced, even the code of the program that you're running. And so the consequence of that is um, you can write quines in, in, uh, in jargon really easily. Quines are programs that when you run them, they output their own source code. And so quines are trivial because you just have like one instruction that says, output, output my own source code, <laughs> and then it does it. And we call that feature referential omnipotence because you could just like reference anything that you want. Yeah, and I'm curious, like how does jargon handle uh, – how, like what is the bug rate now? You know, for example, I've I've been using it to practice my Spanish as well, living here in El Salvador, which may or may not have higher English levels than Miami. Um, and I found <laughs> you know overall pretty good. But um, you know, when I tried to have it be a translator and I wasn't using jargon, it was a complete mess. So I'm curious if I were to use jargon, like what's the bug rate now, just on chat four, for example? So it definitely look. It's it, it's definitely not perfect because. You know, this is a language that is interpreted by an intelligence, and that intelligence ideally is GPT-4. You can, you can use it on GPT-3.5, but it works like the flow control works way better on GPT-4. And even then, it doesn't always work perfectly. Like, it's, it's, it's not a programming language in the sense that programming languages are deterministic, and this is not like this, this can have like very different results depending on which session it is or what the random seed is of your of your AI inferences and and, and whatever. But it's it's generally um, it generally gives you a little bit more more form. And then the issues that you would run into today is that there's certain features of language that just like don't work as well. They're not as like robust. So for example, like instruction following very robust. But when you start doing like flow control, um, there are times when it might get confused and like not go to the beginning of the loop or something. And the, kind of the short answer is there's different ways of specifying jargon. Like you could do it using a fine tuning, I think. And then there's like more powerful LLMs that will come along. They'll understand it better too. And But today, like we are where we are and it's sort of messy and non-deterministic. Okay, so I want to start asking questions that then lead us into the implications of this. So the first one is, in the last couple of weeks since you've done this and other people have played with it, you've you know, gotten and noticed, um, how has your personal thinking about the present and future of programming changed? Either, you know, how, like, what you think about it in general, what types of things you would or wouldn't invest in now, stuff like that. Because I'm guessing this has had a significant effect on your own internal state. Well, a lot of a lot of people, Tim, have asked like, why even bother with this like weird language thing? And it's a good question because it's it is messy, it's weird, it's like it's not as stable as if you were to just use a language. And I think what what it's for is to like kind of talk to AIs. Um, but but the other like as we were thinking about this. Um, just kind of like I was thinking on other people on Twitter, you know, someone was like, hey, well, this is basically a way of writing pseudocode, and then you can actually tell uh, the GPT uh, jargon interpreter 
just spit out like the C++ version of that pseudocode or the assembly language version of that pseudocode or the JavaScript version. And it's kind of an interesting thought that like, okay, here's like a more formally specified pseudocode language. And it's just kind of an intermediate step to a final, you know, actual language. Um, now, whether that Tim is sort of missing the broader point of like, wait a minute, you know, codecs and other AI models, um, are just going to obsolete programmers. I'm not sure. <laughs> we have to like mm-hmm. see it, but it, you know, just in principle, it, it's interesting. Yeah. So what I'm trying to get at is like, is there something that before? So we've seen that it could be used as a pseudocode. Um, obviously, you know, we've we've sort of probably all always thought that with a sufficiently advanced AI, you could have codex obsolete programmers. But I'm wondering, like, in the interim. Uh, sort of what's changing about how you're feeling about how you're feeling about yeah. programming in general, or what types of so what types of things are interesting to you? Well, I mean, I definitely am following this track of thought that um, you know, computer programmer programming as a as a vocation is going to be either like you know really augmented by AIs, or it's literally going to be kind of. I don't want to say obsoleted, but but AI will put a huge dent in you know how you are able to be productive and compensated like as an engineer. Mm-hmm. And so I'm definitely like following. I'm not like super deeply following it because I'm not like really a. I'm a crypto investor and I invest on the intersection of AI and Web three, but I don't really invest in like pure AI startups. But I do I do kind of follow the the, the technical progress, and so. Like one thing about those, like like specifically like programming language related models to think about is that because they're so disruptive to programmers, they're all like very very closed. Like nobody has incentives to open that kind of thing up. Like everybody wants to make the the money that happens in that in that transition, uh, and that's kind of black. And that's exactly why I'm investing on the intersection of Web three and AI. If we could talk about. Yeah, and I think you raised, Coinfund raised 300 million, you know, just a few, just about a little under a year ago um, to invest specifically in Web3. So how do you see that intersection? Is this, does this pivot the fund or is it, or is there a really clear use case for AI pairing with crypto? Well, so, so great question. You know, like a lot of people on Twitter make fun of crypto VCs and they're like, oh, look, AI is like now moving faster and it's more interesting and crypto VCs are pivoting to AI. I don't feel like that at all. Uh, let me explain why. Um, like if I wanted to invest in AI, like purely, like I'm very self-critical of the fact that I should have done, I should have started to do that five years ago or something like that, right? Like it feels like very late to be coming into the pure AI you know, early stage investment world right now. I mean, they're going through an ICO boom uh, of 2017 there. Um, And so like my whole thing as an investor, I like to be early to stuff. I like to see technology before other people see it. it. And, um, And so this is exactly why I'm like, well, well, what is, what is the intersection of Web3 and AI? Like, is there one? And if you rewind, like maybe... If you were on even like a year ago, a year and a half ago, like you see these two fields, there's crypto and then there's AI. And the people in those fields are like, couldn't be more different. Like the AI people are like, 
it's all about what school you went to and who your professor were, was and which group at Google did you work at or which group at NVIDIA did you work at. And that is what determines like your prestige of like what you can do in AI. And in crypto, it's just like which, you know, DeFi protocol did you build or like which hack did you, um, you know, did you analyze and, and whatever. And it's all about like what you um, can build. And if you like talk to AI people, like even right now, right? Like they couldn't care less about decentralized networks. They're like, dude, I, I just need like the supercomputer from, you know, from Amazon to, to make like progress on the cutting edge of like large foundation models. They don't care about making that decentralized. Like that's just going to slow them down in the progress that we're making. But it is the people in Web3 who are like, oh, wait a minute. You know what? If we apply decentralized networks of computation to training AI models, then we can start to do things like crowdfund $15 million to create like a GPT-5 competitor, right? And, and um, like, whereas like OpenAI has this like insane punitive advantage, right? Because they know the people at Microsoft and they have these like huge data centers and so on. Um, like, like crypto doesn't have that. So they have to build that as a decentralized network. But I'll, I'll say one last thing and then I'll, I'll be quiet which is that why do I care about Web3 primitives in AI? Because if you look at the pipeline of AI, how it's made, it is completely owned by big tech today. And what Web3 is going to do is going to open that up in a big way. Yeah, pretty ironic that OpenAI is a private company that is not open source. And we have no idea what's happening with their model. It's uh, not great. That is, a, that, is a, that is a criticism of them and how they're doing it, yeah. And so... Yeah, it's it's also, you know, with deep fakes getting really, really compelling and accurate, you know, Jordan Peterson's like, I didn't say that, for example. We saw that on Twitter recently. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like you, you will need to also just cryptographically prove what you did and didn't say. Like, that'll become quite important yep. as these AIs get yep. very, very lifelike and realistic. Yeah, so that's just like one touch point of Web3 and AI that's just kind of like, provenance of <laughs> of content right like you, everything just has to be signed with your identity and you have to have a digital identity it's got to be cryptographic uh, and inviolable right um but but let me just say like what are the other pieces well first of all data huge right all these models need insane amounts of data um and you need professionals to compile that data because it's all about how you compile it and how clean it is number two is you need to train and so we have a portfolio company called Jensen.AIGNSYN. They're doing like a decentralized network for uh, training of these models. Then you need to serve the models. So inference, you need networks that like you're able to call, they compute like the output of what GPT is saying to you. And then you need to essentially commercialize that, like put that into applications that are usable by normal people or by urban um, uh, participants for that matter, right? Um, and that whole pipeline can be turned into open source software, uh, can be made safe by virtue of the fact that it is open, can have enormous impacts on progress that is being made. I mean, guys, like, look at, like, Dolly came out in Jan of 22. Wow. Then the the open version of Dolly, uh, which is Stable Diffusion, came out in August of 22. That's like six months or something. Um, seven months. 
That is not a long time if you compare it to what happened before. And now you have GPT-4 came out, what, three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago? And you have a number, you have Llama, Alpaca, GPT for all, like you have all these like open versions of GPT starting to come to market and it's like three and a half weeks. Like the time for these models to get open is becoming zero. Yeah, I think it's sort of like the analogy with airplanes, right? Everyone's just like, oh, AI can actually be useful. Now it's like, oh, it is useful. Okay, let's try to, let's try to open source it as fast as possible and see how quickly we can catch up. So you see crypto primarily in this world as relevant as sort of the rails by which AI becomes open, like without putting a value judgment on that one way or another. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, so, so yes. Yeah, so that pipeline of creating AI, I think humanity would benefit if it was open, if it wasn't like controlled by, you know, private companies or like government interests. I think, I, I, I do think it will be like ultimately safer the other thing is, check out this tweet from Ilya Polasukin, who's the CEO of Near Protocol, which is a big incumbent um, layer one blockchain. But by the way, Ilya is also the, the final author on the paper, uh, Attention is All You Need, which is the most famous kind of AI paper of the last five years. Oh, interesting. I did trend. not know that. Yeah, yeah. So Ilya came to blockchain like from Google, from doing AI research. Um, and he, so he just tweeted like, guys, like you can't essentially have one, like one private company, you know, making GPT safe. Like that does not make sense. Like, like the, how can a product that, you know, follows like a single narrative safety mechanism where, um, I don't know, uh, you know, the president Biden is topped up and Donald Trump is topped down. Like, how can that be the optimal configuration for this technology? Right? Yeah, and it has um, relatively stupid constraints. Like, I was using it to learn Spanish, and I had modified it to write me stories instead of just doing translation. And it couldn't let me do anything with, like, like any kind of, like, any story that involved invasion or, like, general human history. It was just, like, you know, completely restricted on that. And you're just, like... All right, that's just like one small example, but yeah, you can politicize it as well, right? It's not letting you write your like little invasion fanfic in Spanish. <laughs> no, no, and, but like it's it's so closed off on like any word that is touching like not even real violence, just a normal story. Right, right. The analogy is like I can't generate like nudity or something on on Dolly, right? But like, why is like nudity is a legitimate um, primitive of art, right? And like. <laughs> Like it should, and but but the solution to that, right, is that you is that you download Stable Diffusion onto your M1 Mac or desktop, and then you just like query it however you want. I wanted to push back a little bit on the safety assumption because in my sort of AI pilling exploration of the last few weeks, I mean, I think everything gets overturned, and it's one of those things that sounds good, but I'm not sure that it holds up to further inspection. Like when we say that, oh, if it's more open, it will be. Uh, it will be safer, or what are the odds that, like, you know, one company with its biases uh, is going to be better? But the, the the issue I see with that that sort of worries me here in terms of using crypto in this way is that safety is is different than other things. It's, it's one of those things where 
you know, for a startup, you're kind of so you want, or just to, to just make a scientific discovery, you want openness because uh, it doesn't matter how many times you get it wrong, you only have to get it right once, right? You're looking for a thing that works. Whereas in this case, it sort of doesn't matter how many times you get it right. If you get it wrong once, you're totally screwed. And by having something completely open, um, you, you sort of increase, in my opinion, increase the chances that, you know, even very well-intentioned people uh, can produce something bad that's very hard to switch off and maybe unstoppably hard to switch off. So I guess what's your, like, how far along are you in terms of thinking of, you know, maybe that kind of X risk versus uh, just the like, okay, okay, open will increase the amount of iteration that happens so we get more power. Well, I think, I think what is the safety mechanism for AI? It's alignment. But how can you align it if you don't, like, this is a problem that we've never had to solve before. And how can you honestly say that, like, we'll keep it closed and we'll have, like, you know, 100 people or something working on alignment. And then that, then it'll be, like, totally safe versus, like, opening it and having, like, thousands of people or tens of thousands of people working in alignment and actually like finding the solution. So that's like one, one thought. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and like, and then the other thought is, well, I mean, a lot of people have very different ideas of the negative impacts that could happen. And, and honestly, like if we wanted to, we could sit here and probably come up with six like dramatically different, like apocalypse scenarios. <laughs> Like on one on one end of that spectrum is like the Yudkovskian, right? Uh, you like make a super intelligent AI and then we all die. I don't, I'm not sure I'm in that camp. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum might just be like the much more mundane, but in a way like vastly more sinister uh, state of the world where we don't all die, but open AI sucks up every little piece of private data in the world, kills Google, you know, ultimately, like, completely controls your life, and it's just, like, a private organization. Mm. I mean... Then then there's also just, like, it obsoletes a lot of jobs that people have currently, I guess, trained on. Um, Uh You have that whole sort of societal impact direction that I think will, frankly, be pretty big, even just off of chat four. We're not stopping that one. (laughs) So, well, so, so that's my point, right? Like, Choose your choose your doom scenario, and then and then let's talk about alignment. Once you've chosen that scenario, because in, in that scenario that I just mentioned, where you know private companies are sucking up private data, I really really want openness, and I want decentralized governance, right? And then in the scenario in the Yudkovskian scenario, then maybe I only want like you know I, I want the country in the world that is the least evil to make the most progress on AI because I know that they'll keep it like safe. Um, kind of like us owns most of the nuclear weapons type of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's reasonable and definitely motivates pushing, pushing ahead on it. I guess like, I think in this discussion, I'm just struck by how there's a lot of, you know, just knee jerk things that you sort of want to think through beyond how they sound, um, because stuff is going really fast. And I still, I don't know, I I still think we're not exactly ready for how, how wild stuff could get. Uh, well, where where are you guys, where, where are you guys on that? Like, what's your, like, what do you see as the dangers from where you sit? 
Um, it's very weird because I have to toggle between a lot of modes. As I was telling Mitchell, like before, you know, we got on the call, like you're toggling between sort of, you know, the X risk mode where you're saying, okay, how could, what kind of disruptions could there be, could there be, would would they be like, you know, jobs change? Would they be like people die? Like whatever. Uh, then you have to go back to like, you know, individual projects. Like, you know, I'm running Bar essentially, like, what does this mean uh, for Bar? It definitely, you know, doesn't mean nothing. Um, so, and, and all of that is kind of going on at once, and you sort of flip each day between uh, evaluating each one of them, and then also, like, <laughs> while you're doing that, a new paper will come out, or a new, like, project or proof of concept will come out that, like, sort of further updates uh, what's happening. But I think, like, if I were going to broadly stress where, like, sort of sum up where I am, um, I would feel better if some exogenous factor made it harder to iterate an AI because getting a little bit of extra time to even literally like work with what we currently have would be nice. I think there's just a ton of low hanging fruit to be picked from what we have. Um, and then aside from that, Uh, I don't really have a choice except to try to iterate, um, you know, AI AI integration with the stuff I do as fast as possible because I don't have enough power to slow down anything or stop it. So in that vein, I would go along with efforts to make it happen uh, on a crypto substrate and sort of go out there, integrate it as much as possible with urban and bar things. Um, But that's like a very, you know, just sort of almost a prisoner's dilemma type thing. So can I can I paint you guys a a doomsday scenario that is like completely unlike any of the other ones we mentioned? Um, Yes, please. And doesn't even and doesn't even require um, like super intelligence or even like GPTs that are like that intelligent. So here Mm -hmm. it is. Ready? So GPT gets a little bit more intelligent, and then people start using it for work. Computer programmers start using it to write programs, lawyers start using it to create forms, you know, uh, journalists start using it to augment their articles, which become just so much better and nicer to read and more engaging, and so on and so forth. And suddenly you're in a world where, um, you know, you can't be competitive in your job unless you're also using, a, you know, some kind of model like this, right? Like you're, if you just write the, if you're a journalist and you just write an article by hand, the engagement is going to suck. And then your computer program is going to have bugs and like on and on. And this happens like for every single vocation out there. And suddenly we live in a world where like, it's all about like which LLM you have, which AI you have. It's all about how much money you have to spend on a little bit more computation to make your AI a little bit more fine tuned. All everyone is talking about is is AI. You You open up like Google news it's all about the advances in AI and what everyone's doing uh, about AI and how the government is regulating AI and Google News is now generated by AI and like and like you, you go into this like dystopia where like the whole world starts to just like revolve around AI and that's all anyone can. Ever- Hmm. Oh, I mean, it's kind of like introducing the tractor to farming, right? You have to then buy a tractor, otherwise your farm yield just sucks compared to everyone else's. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, 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 a arms race. Well, yeah, I'd kind of like to dig into it, like the actual ways people are using it today, because just at the Urbit Villa here in El Salvador, like everyone subscribed to ChatGB4 this week, basically. And so we're all playing around with it. And Tim, I think you've played around with ChatGB4 a fair amount in a work context. Can you kind of talk through that use case? 
So definitely I started doing it because I think Twitter has been really effective for spreading, sort of syncing up the hive mind really fast in this case, more than I've ever seen. And so I was seeing people on Twitter talk about how it was augmenting their workflow. So I started, I hadn't done much with it. I tried it out in conjunction with Copilot and it was noticeably really good. Uh, there had been stuff I wanted to explore in terms of like, I wanted to look at some WebRTC stuff. And it made that way, way faster. Um, and I could explore it much faster, get code. It was basically like every time you switch to a new area of coding, you have this like couple hour or sometimes couple day process to boot up your brain to it, which makes switching between domains really unappealing. I'm sure Jake knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and it was cutting that uh, exploration time drastically where you could sort of feel good about what was happening in this new context and feel sort of like there was something solid beneath your feet much faster. Now the funny, uh, I was also using it for some solidity code in code pilot and it worked really, it worked really well. Um, it was like identifying some conditions I hadn't thought to check for, for example. Um, mm. now that were not like just, just boilerplate. They, they were from actually looking at the structure of my code. Um, the upshot of it actually was that I sort of felt the need to explore those areas less because in a meta, and this is probably only because I'm kind of, you know, have more responsibility to the project at a higher level. Like then that throws you back into another decision-making process where I'm like, okay, what's, you know, what does this mean for what we're doing? Uh, how do we have to change the things we're looking at? Maybe I don't need to explore some of these things I was exploring right now uh, because, they're, they're all sort of irrelevant if we can't get AI integrated to it. Um, we had a similar experience with getting our front-end programmers onto it. Uh, they were pretty much, if they, if they hadn't been on it already, they were pretty much instantly pilled and went from, like, you know, not thinking, like, literally, in one case, thinking that AGI was 100 years away to, like, becoming, like, you hmm. type doomers, like, overnight. Um like, like it was, it was, it was, it was shocking and religious. And I think that that shouldn't be underestimated because these are like talented people who do this stuff like every day. Um, and then there were sort of different aspects of that across. But yeah, for me, the main one is like, it actually sort of cut out the fat and focused me a lot in terms of, oh, actually the only thing that's relevant right now is figuring out a way to, let's say, make uh, Urban Anukbar AI enabled because it's just very, it's just very obvious that anything else is going to be like, I guess, sort of a weird form of hobby programming, like almost like, you know, making clay pots uh, because it's fun and rewarding to do, even though post-industrial revolution, there's no economic need for that. Mm. And I guess, like, to your point about making it integral with integrated with Urbit, I'm kind of curious, you know, chat 3.5 is pretty bad at Hoon, like just terrible, even though it confidently was terrible. Four is okay. Like, I'm curious, Jake, what have you found in terms of training these models? Like, how, how can we actually get chat four to Hoon or do we have to wait to like chat five, chat six? I did, well, um, I did like a little bit of work on this and Tim, Tim did as well. And we, we actually talked about it together. Um, but one, one idea that folks have had in Urbit is, um, can we take a bunch of Hoon code or Hoon examples and can we fine tune a model, um, to basically be able to code in Hoon better and to answer questions about Hoon, which would be amazing for people who are learning it. Yeah. It'd be a game changer. And, and the thing is, like, you can't actually fine-tune 
like GPT four uh, for various reasons. Like there's a there's a technical reason that that doesn't work well, which is that um, GPT four is not like a code uh, oriented LLM. It's like a very general LLM. You want a, you mm. want an LLM that's been like fine tuned on a lot of code. And there's a practical reason, which is like you're not allowed to fine tune uh, GPT uh, by opening up. The shorter answer to your question, Nilron, is that a lot of the stuff, as Jake said, people have been iterating really, really rapidly in the last three weeks. Um, and also people have been reverse engineering what OpenAI did, likely did to get GPT-4, which seems very likely that it wasn't uh, increasing the number of parameters for the size. Mm -hmm. It's like more, uh, a lot of techniques added together, um, which is also terrifying in its own way that we could discuss because it means they could probably just crank up the number of parameters um, and get something single. And no joke. I, mean, I actually think in 10x, four, uh, like five becomes 10x better than four, just the same. I would yeah, say four is at least that, that's sort 10x of, better than three. That, that's been one of my biggest conclusions, like diving. So I started diving into it for the purpose of answering that question that Jake and I first talked about about a week ago, which was, can we make this work for Hoon? And my answer right now is... Probably yes. It'll take a decent amount of work and experimentation and know-how. Um, but people are doing that stuff right now. Uh, will there also be a lot of stuff that just comes out that we don't know about yet that will help with that? Uh, but that also has really big implications for the future of, let's say, call it GPT-5. Uh, because the fact that people are getting these kind of performance gains just by doing technique-based stuff and not by increasing the size of the models, uh, and the fact that they're doing that because they think that's what OpenAI did to get GPT-4, uh, implies that we might see a massive disruption uh, when they release a version, let's call it GPT-5, that involves just cranking up um, the number of parameters and the size of the training run. Well, Tim, we, we, we also had, like, according to our research, um, it's also, like, we found that actually, generally speaking, the number of parameters coincides with intelligence, but, but there's also ways of, like, lowering the number of parameters and then keeping the same level of intelligence. So, yes. in other words, like, optimization. Yes. Absolutely. That's, that's what I was talking about. And I think people are finding lots of those optimizations and finding ways to get them to compound and feed in. People are, are doing a lot of interesting stuff with like various feedback techniques and generating data. Like if you look at GPT for all, which is a model that came out like a mm -hmm. few days ago, what you'll find is that like they're claiming that it has like GPT 3.5 like performance, but because they like quantize the model it has a significantly lower number of parameters and you can run on your desktop. Yes, there's, um, I think the amount of work coming out, and I'm, I'm familiar with GPT for all, and the amount of work coming out on a daily basis in terms of what I would call using technique-based stuff to, um, you know, juice things at lower model sizes is really impressive. It's really interesting. It's kind of terrifying. And I think one thing about it is that it doesn't contradict are you you're, are you familiar with the article like the bitter lesson, right, Jake? I can summarize. I don't think I. No, I don't okay. think I am actually. Let me let me just like um, let me just like put in the chat here and uh, yeah. can include it and stuff. But it's very simple. Basically, it's the idea that for years over the course of AI, uh, people have tried to find clever programming techniques that would make uh, a machine more intelligent, better able to like let's say play something like chess, and you know make like try to basically make a model inside it 
that would play chess well. But in fact, the thing that's been stupidly overperforming in playing chess well is to get more compute um, and use sort of stupider and stupider approaches with lots of, you know, with lots of scale and lots yes. of data to get that, right? And that's like, you know, AlphaGo uh, pretty much did that where instead of like trying to mo- have a human programmer model Go, you just have it play against itself and have this like, you know, large amount of compute thrown at it. So my point is that it seems like uh, the idea that you can use these optimization techniques sort of contradicts the bitter lesson. But I would actually say that almost everything that people are doing that's interesting right now is using a technique in order to try to scale better in the absence of doing a big training run with lots of parameters and use and finding ways to automate the creation of, you know, larger of larger data sets or more automated like RLHF and fine tuning, things like that. And that's pretty well, – I think I said on Twitter the other day or was also quoting other people that you know, I think we, we possibly have like decades of economic productivity that you could squeeze out of better techniques and stitching together of GPT-4-level stuff. Uh, but like we're also likely to just get something like GPT-5. Um, and I think it's the, – the combination of those two things uh, is very quickly entering like a loop where – machines can give feedback and scoring on stuff that other machines do, uh, which drastically increases the, the size of data you can train on. And yeah, the, you link to Gwern's like scaling hypothesis uh, article, which is like, that, that's like a must read. Mm-hmm. It's even sort of more full featured. And he, he may even link to the better lesson in it. He probably does. Yeah, we'll make sure to throw that in the show notes too. Um, Tim, your discussion of sort of how we still have yet to even pick the low-hanging fruit with something like GPT-4, where we're still really figuring out what we can do with this, raises a question for me. So many people seem to be talking about how GPT augments programming and software development, and that makes a lot of sense. One, that's what early AI enthusiasts no, like it's a similar overlapping world, but it also is really clear how these things sort of stack and build each other. But I'm curious if any of you guys have had success using GPT in improving productivity or optimizing in areas beyond programming. I've been experimenting yes. with it a little bit to do like content creation and I find that like there are times where it's amazing and but it is like I don't know (laughs) it's not the best stylist I've ever seen I think it's consistently I don't know b plus a minus stylist which is great if you're just trying to get through college but not necessarily great if you're trying to put publics like high quality public things out under your name so I'm curious where you guys are finding um productivity coming from yeah, I, I, I'll throw in a couple here. So, you, you, you know, I described kind of my Spanish language learning productivity, mm-hmm. but the other, some of the other areas have been um, meal planning and like creating, just like spitting out recipes. Um, oh, I like and that. Spitting out like a, a grocery list yeah. and also um, workout planning. <laughs> if you want to <laughs> like a bump, you can have a plan like a weekly barbell workout for you. Um, I know, our head of marketing, uh, Jules Mosler at CoinFund, she tweeted publicly the other day, like she was, um, she had some like EKG results and stuff like that, but the doctor's office was closed. She was kind of feeling worried about it. She put them into GPT and was like, are these like normal? And it was like, you're fine. Wow. 
you know, so it gave her like a lot of peace of mind on like medical results. Um, I've seen a few other things, but that's, that's the kind of stuff that is pretty cool. For something like the, I don't know, the workout thing though, I guess, do you, why do you have confidence that that is particularly better than any other of the infinite workouts you could find online? Um, it, like, I, it, I don't know why particularly I would trust this over X expert. Um, or, do you, or is it just that it's easier and you can follow it? <laughs> One of my best friends from like, college and stuff and he's actually like these days he's in the nft space but um yeah he, he worked for as a personal trainer for a long, long time he was my personal trainer and like the truth is like it's what those folks do yes it's customized to different customers but it's it, it actually is like quite formulaic to, to recommend stuff it's like you just you know there's like discrete kind of situations that a client can be in and then you, you tend to recommend the same kind of regimen to according to the situation. So like, for example, like in my experience, right, like you could start very general. You could be like, okay, just give me like a barbell workout, and it'll, you know, for, for entire seven days, and it'll give you like a rest day. It'll give you like, okay, you do cardio on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But then you might be like, wait a minute, I haven't worked out in like a year, and I need, I can't just like go to 12 reps. You know, can you make this like mm-hmm. a gradually increasing workout? And then I'll make the modification and it'll, you know, and then you'll have a gradually increasing workout. And then you'll say, you know what? I don't have that much time to do it. Like make, make these works that like summarize them, make them shorter. Right. And so there's, there's all these like optimizations that you can do that will get you to the right thing. Sure. And that's, I think what really matters in working out is like, it needs to work for you. For your lifestyle, so it's it's responsive, it it's quick, and you can you can continue to mess with it in a way that you can't for just something you're you're googling and finding online. You can have it exactly, and, and it's just cheaper, right? Like, sure, to the yeah. chagrin of, to the chagrin of my of my uh, of my friends. Yeah, I mean, I I found so many people also using it just to learn to code, similar to how Tim Luck was doing it. I was just doing this for some JavaScript stuff and. It's, it's so much better than just going through a static online tutorial because similar to Jake's example with, you know, the gym, it's, it's very tailored to you and you can kind of ask questions as you think of them versus yes. having to rely on like this static guide that like was written for the entire world. You can actually, yeah, it's just more personal. It's, it's much, much yeah, faster. This is an excellent point. Like the question asking facility is just mind blowing because like, I was actually having ChatGPT help me go down into the details of how, you know, these AI models work. I was like, tell me about transformers. Like, okay, like, tell mm-hmm. me about attention. Tell me about mass attention. What does that mean? You know, like, these things are, like, you could read about them, but if you haven't spent a bunch of time in those communities and, like, in those classes at Stanford or wherever it is, it's going to be really hard. But if you can ask questions, it becomes so much easier to to grok like complex stuff. Yeah, it's like I, Wikipedia, but like you are guiding yourself. Like you don't you don't have to rely on Wikipedia's linking. You can just like go down the rabbit right. hole based on like your own mind. It's really it's really interesting. <laughs> I I have a seven month old, my my daughter, um, and I'm just wondering like by the time that she goes, you know, like five years from now or whatever, when she goes to first grade, um, are they going to be taught by AIs or something? What do you think? Kind of, 
Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I mean, it, it seems like it could happen, at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like if they're not, that I would just pull my kids. Well, I don't have children yet, but um, <laughs> I would pull them out of school and just be like, look, we're doing like mostly I, maybe some amount of babysitting combined with that. I mean, well, I mean, this leads to a whole different like sort of AI doomsday scenario when no one knows how to socialize and everyone is a weird like internet mm, freak. The classic homeschool. Uh, sure, I, it's all homeschools yeah. already. That that provides a good transition to another thing. I think we're wondering your opinion on Jake is is how far are we from getting, you know, personal AI and AI assistance? Obviously, something like Lindy is already out there, and you're able to sort of manipulate Chat GPT to be responsive to you. But it's not quite this sort of you know super Siri in your pocket knows everything you needed to know and can can adjust your life accordingly. So. Is that is that coming for us? And if so, how do we keep it safe from you know selling our data and all our information to the uh, to the oh, AI overlords? Oh, oh yeah, it's coming. And the way that you save it from, or the way that you save yourself from getting your data exploited, is you uh, you you use Web three. <laughs> but, <laughs> but let me let me go, let me go into a little bit more detail there. So you guys might and the audience might have noticed that. You know, there's a huge push to just like integrate these chatbots like everywhere. It's now like going into G Suite. It's you know inside of Bing. It's here. It's there. It's everywhere, and that's wonderful. But the reality is that longer term, users don't want to go to a million chatbots. They want to have one chatbot who knows them really well, who has who is customized to them, and you sort of travel along with it to whatever application that you're looking at, and. This is essentially why OpenAI is doing uh, their platform, right? Their plugins, because like if you extrapolate that forward, right? Like it starts pretty, pretty vanilla. You're like, oh, order me a pizza on Seamless ChatGPT, right? And then it goes to Seamless and does it. And then like the next stage is like, oh, well, I have all these like financial accounts and bank accounts and you know trading accounts. Why don't you like go into them and like optimize my finances for me? Mm-hmm. And I'll go do that. And and then like much later, you're you know I don't know you're like a scientist or something, and you're working on you know gene folding or whatever. And like um, you're like, man, I really wish I had like a Nobel Prize winning professor to advise me on where to go next with my research. So you plug in like GPT five, and it reads your your data, and then you know, it gives you like amazing ideas, right? And so when you get to that personalization stage, that's when OpenAI wins and everybody else loses, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I wonder though, you know, people are very sensitive about their genetic data, for example, especially just like, I don't know. My, my social group is definitely very, very sensitive about their genetic data. And so I'm just not sure. I, I wonder about the second order effects, right? Like, if we get to this point, are people just going to start moving their data and their digital lives onto their private servers? Like if it's, if it gets to that level, the sort of dystopian future, what prevents people from just retreating into their own private servers that the AIs don't have visibility into or well, you need, open AI wouldn't? You, 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 it's not that the data, like you should have your data on private servers and so forth. But what matters in this case is where the computation is taking place. So if you take your private server data and send it to OpenAI for processing, then it's not private anymore. 
what you need to do is you need to run, you know, the AI locally on your urban, and then it's processing your local data and it's safe. Mm. And are we are we that far? This might be more of a question for like Ravnus Rickfer at uh, the Urban Foundation, but are, are we that far from being able to run these models? Like, for example, the Llama model locally on, say, an Urbit or at least on, like, I don't know, maybe an iPhone. You, well, you can run the Llama, like Llama.cpp, Alpaca.cpp, you know, very efficiently on your Mac right now. And it'll don't, work. Don't. And it won't even be that slow. It's just that the model isn't as good as GPT-4. So what you want is you want the hardware to get a little bit more accelerated and you want the models to be a little bit more optimized mm-hmm. and then you'll be able to run it, you know, on your device potentially. Do you see that as pretty doable, like a one-year problem, three-year problem? How long do you think that would take? Just, I mean, just, just in, a, in a generic view of like technology always optimizes the fuck out of this, then yes, I think it's very, very doable and it's going to come very fast. Because just just think about the reality. Like like a year and a half ago, nobody was thinking about AI. A year ago, nobody was thinking about AI. And now everybody, like the only thing that we can talk about is AI now, right? And so that means that everybody who's running a data center, everybody who um, owns a company that creates ASICs, every, anyone who has compute in the form of GPUs, they're all like, how do I repurpose my, my shit to do this now? And how do I optimize it? Right, because model inference is just this huge like optimization game. I mean, there's a lot mm-hmm. more to say on, on that, right? But like, like there's a there's a race going right now. How the, how do we optimize the fuck out of like serving these things? And you know, some of the solutions are like you know, Google has TPUs, which are like I don't know that much about them, but the you know they're like optimized ASICs for uh, neural network computations maybe like training and maybe like inference uh, by extension. And then um, you, you just have like NVIDIA working on optimizations. Then you have people building like huge networks that just have a lot of GPUs. So you can, you, you know, you guys know stability, like like the guys who made stable diffusion. You, you know what their like secret sauce is? No. It, it, it's, it's essentially that they have access to Amazon's like supercomputer, which happens to be like the, I don't know, the third or fourth or something, like most powerful supercomputer in the world. Like that's how they can do what they do. Um, once you decentralize that, once you create a network that has, you know, comparable compute, it will happen eventually. Um, then anyone can do that. Mm. And how effective are these AIs at like, I don't know, I, there, there's sort of two narratives, right? There's one is Urbit as kind of this WeChat, everything computer, you're sort of, all your services run from your orbit. Another is just sort of gluing together different services via their APIs, this sort of like Stripe-like approach. How, like given LLMs and the fact they are pretty useful now and they'll probably get much more useful, does that give a particular advantage to Urbit's vision versus the kind of this vision of gluing various APIs together? I mean, I think... I, th- I think, like, AI, first of all, benefits Urbit in many ways, just like it benefits everything else, like, from a perspective of onboarding, teaching people about Urbit, you know, teaching Hoon, things like that. I think Urbit is made as a self-sovereign data technology. Um, and so 
it is one of the tools that we can, it is essentially web three. It is an awesome primitive to try to like, um, you know, to, to preserve the privacy and self sovereignty of our data. So I think people will work on that. I know, I know people are working on that. Um, and then like, what will we actually be able to do in terms of AI development on urban? That is more unclear to me, uh, just because there's already this very like specialized software pipeline that does most of this stuff and urban would have to, you know, integrate a lot more Python or something. Mm, <laughs> to, gotcha. Yeah. To really benefit from yeah, that. Gotcha. Yeah. Kind of similar question over to you, Tim. Like you mentioned, you know, you think it's really, really important for Urbit to kind of integrate in these LLMs, integrate in AI. Like how does it does that? How does it do that? What does it look like? I, I didn't realize until I was in this. Um, Chad. Chad, quiet One there. sec. Let me, let me, let me answer. Um, so, yeah, I didn't realize until I was on this call or when I was having some discussions with Ravnus that people sort of misunderstand what I think there, which is I didn't realize that when I said that Urbit needs to integrate AI, they think that I might mean Urbit needs to integrate the AI training pipeline and, um, in, or even inference pipeline into it. And in my view, that's like sort of a nice to have, would take a lot of work and kind of fails the test that I often do when I'm looking at like, you know, should I invest in something or uh, build something, which is, okay, if I had this thing, would it make my life that much better? And I think the answer of like, you know, urban native, like AI pipeline is like, it wouldn't change my life that much. Um, The thing that urban needs right now is that it's designed to be this like, you know, composable set of programs um, and code that, like, you can use to orchestrate them and let them compose. And if that code and that composability can't be AI-assisted, it's like you built something that's composable, but, like, people have to use punch cards to use it or, like, write an assembly code. Mm. And I'm sorry, that's just, like, like, the other way to say it is that for the last three years, I've operated under the assumption that Urban had this big advantage against everyone else, which is that it was architected in a way that allowed that composability, which is necessary because uh, it's not tractable at scale for humans to basically glue APIs together. Um, and so that means that like you sort of had this time to get that right until someone else tried that architecture. And sufficiently powerful, I always knew that sufficiently powerful uh, programming AIs would break that assumption because suddenly, like, you actually can glue stuff together pretty well because, like, a machine can do it, and the machine can handle mm. a, lot of, a lot of fuzzy stuff. And I just thought those were much further away. And in the last week or two, I had to update to, you know, not only are they closer than I think, they're already partially here, probably another, you know, order of magnitude, like, sort of improvement which is very you can it's easy to imagine that coming from open ai would get you like even past it and so in that world um the only way for urban to be competitive is for everything in its programming language and the way it composes programs to be under to be understandable to an ai that can like write code for that and do that composability based on natural language um and in that case it would still have a very good chance to be the winning solution um, in, a, in the world Jake's imagining, which is like uh, crypto enabling Web3 by giving it a different way to deploy um, and be out there. 
And I think in that world, um, AI-enabled Orbit would do well. But I think that I have updated very strongly in the last week from Orbit has a fundamental advantage over other architectures to Orbit is completely screwed uh, if it does not integrate AI to understand Hoon and Knock. Um, and then that would flip back if it had that to Urban is now in a really good position again. But I, I don't want to like understate the seriousness of this moment because I think most Urban people and Urban adjacent have updated to like this is really important, but they have not updated to this is for Urban existential. Um, that's a really interesting point, Tim. I, I think that you made about you know using AI to, to glue uh, kind of the APIs together and then lowering the, lowering the barrier to entry for that. But, but let me give you some comfort maybe, which is that when you do that, um, it is vastly more expensive, you know, than if you use this like composable mm-hmm. architecture of urban, you know, just to do it sort of like natively. Um, and by the way, we should we should maybe be a little bit more explicit about what we mean there, so folks have a better understanding. So, mm-hmm. what's really cool about Urbit, which you know you don't like, people don't really understand this uh, until you go and use it. And the reason people don't understand this is like it's a paradigm shift into self sovereign data. And there's very few places where, even in Web three today, where you mm-hmm. have true self sovereign data and composability on that. So, like, when you get an Ethereum address and that, like, gives you the right to some data on the Ethereum blockchain, in some sense, that's not even really self-sovereign data. Yes, you control it, but you don't, like, you can't, like, hold it. You don't, you don't own it physically, you know? And what's interesting about, what's interesting about Urbit is it's, like, I have my, my ship running in a native planet on my desk. I kind of, like, physically have the the data mm-hmm. and I, 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 I own it. And then when I install different apps, the virtue of my installing that app is like giving permission for it to be composable. Um, and pals works with rumors, right. And like, like different apps mm-hmm. read each other's data and become customized to you. And there's going to be some like critical mass of that when Urbit has a, a even bigger and more rich ecosystem where you just sort of like open up the, I don't know, uh, word editor of Urbit and it already knows your name. It already knows your address. It already knows like who your friends are. It already knows like your writing style from some other app and stuff. It knows who your AI writing assistant is. You know, and that composability is just like insanely, insanely cool. So, Jake, yeah, thanks a lot for that explanation of Urbit's advantage in data and composing that. And I guess what I was saying uh, when I was saying that, like, integrating AIs that can understand and orchestrate Urbit software is existential for Urbit, is that all mm-hmm. those advantages that you're talking about are just going to be too unergonomic for people to actually want to use them, both developers and mm. users, in a world where, you know, you can fire up a program that basically does that across your Gmail, Facebook, like all, like all of those things, your calendar, whatever. It's going to, like, those things, we can say why they have 
privacy issues or why they're, they aren't, the composability isn't as good. And I would agree with all those things. But again, as I said earlier, if you made this awesome composable system and then told people they had to, you know, use punch cards to write it, it it's just not going <laughs> to, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. So I think that for me right. is the biggest change. And it's this, this combination of like, not um, urban doomerism, but like, realism and then also opportunity where i think before the you know the total the total addressable market for urbit was like a very successful crypto project in terms of developers just because you know you have people have to have a reason to use like you know hoon to get on urbit to do all that stuff uh i think that ai enabled programming and super and the super rich apps that that enables on urbit uh, will like you know drastically lower that barrier for developers and increases sort of the total addressable market to something much closer to like Replits, for example. So I am sort of bullish on that, but it's this bullishness that requires this huge readjustment of resources in the interim, and I'm kind of you know in the mildly painful process of like dealing with that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, understood. Very interesting. Um, well. Maybe maybe we can finish off by saying like why might it be the case that people are overestimating AI a little bit? Um, cool. Like I would offer the I, I would offer the following like like we have a especially in the last like three four five years like we have a history of blowing out of proportion you know various things and I think that's an effect of our modern connected world, our world of social media, a world where information could travel at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and we can point to things like COVID potentially being like really overblown, especially in the beginning. We can point to, I don't know, Donald Trump's presidency and how the press reacted to that. Um, so why, you know, given that kind of historical context, like why, Ooh. why is it, why isn't this being like totally overblown mm. right now? I think I'll go back to like the farm analogy. Like when everyone's a farmer and you introduce the tractor, it has a huge impact. But then in a generation or two later, people are no longer in agriculture. They've moved on to other professions. So I feel like the professions that are most disrupted by AI, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to have a huge impact. But then like the next generation will adapt. Like by the time your kid, you know, has grown up, um, your kid isn't going to focus on areas that, you know, we were doing necessarily if it was disruptable by AI. I think um, I've been noticing something really strong in this because I've been through those various, you know, hype cycles and other things. You were there too. when the, the tractor was invented? Uh, <laughs> exactly. The tractor hype cycle is real. Um no, I think it's um, this sort of analogy I use a lot, like sort of, and I'm sorry for offending our religious listeners, but sort of the difference between believing in God versus believing in gravity, which is like the former is, you know, people believe in God very sincerely, uh, you know, in different forms. Uh, it affects a lot of their life. It affects who they, you know, whom they talk to, um, how they live their life, all of these things, right? But at some level, it is this sort of decision or alignment or like something like that. Whereas believing in gravity, everyone who's currently alive right now believes in gravity, right? Or like believes in like, you know, how the, how force and physics work. And they're, and they're not out there trying to like test it against like, you know, bus. Ask Kyrie. Um, <laughs> well, the funny, the, actually, so that's like, Kyrie is actually sort of a great example because like, you know, he has all these sort of 
wacky or, you know, some people would say hateful beliefs. Um, but those are like, for him, those are like things he says that sort of align him in various ways and that are very much like his form of, you know, believing in God. Whereas Kyrie believes in gravity and manipulates it very well with sure, like, you sure. know, basketball dribbling um, and finishing up the rim. Um, <laughs> and so I think that the, the, the thing that's, um, you know, sort of struck me in this whole thing that's felt very different from other cycles is that everybody who's getting pilled on it is not getting pilled because they think they can make money or because they played with it when it, it and it's cool it's universally like holy shit like i just got more into this and i like realized it's this um and it's just this universal holy shit thing that feels very very much like someone you know coming from the moon and encountering strong gravity for the first time and its consequences so i get i get what you're saying i I think there's it definitely feels qualitatively different in a very real way that is is much closer to like you know discovering that gravity exists yeah yeah um but i you know like i also i also push back uh, more (laughs) I don't remember feeling this way like when iPhone came out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and I think it's because I'm used to having cool new capabilities exist. That's happened like throughout my life, and that's where I sort of thought this would be. And I think the thing that's made the rabbit hole so intense for so many people is that as soon as you start investigating anything about it, it just very quickly goes through those, oh, I have a cool new way, like, way to program faster. Uh, or like I have a compiler where uh-huh. I used to write assembly. It's just that there's something different about it. And then, well, the thing that's very obviously different is that as you understand it, it just becomes very obvious how this thing could be, can be used in many ways to accelerate its own development. And I think when you see there's sort of no cap on that because it's pure symbol manipulation uh-huh. and there's sort of no physical, there very few physical caps on that. And that's where we were talking earlier about um, sort of the whatever color pilling it is of seeing people make huge advancements right now just by using techniques and not much extra compute. I think even that is really pilling because it sort of uncaps, uh, you know, even the physical limits that you have of computing. Uh-huh. And all, all these things are sort of, incrementally combining in a multiplicative way to make people take it very, very seriously who understand it at all. Yeah. And and I think, uh, I mean, going to what you said, Jake, about like, I I didn't feel this way when the iPhone came out. And when I, when I try to talk to non-technical friends about this thing, I think they, they, so many of them just view it as like the next iPhone. It's like, Oh, it'll be a little crazy. We'll have something new in our pocket. We'll, We'll look at it. But I the thing I try to describe then, because I, I don't actually think that, like, getting into the tech or the logic of it is what's going to persuade them because I feel so far from their everyday existence. You know, what I try to say is, like, look, when I think about this, my heart rate goes up. Like, it, it it's it's so convincing and so powerful that even to think about it makes puts me in a, a new physical state, not, <clears throat> not necessarily of, like, excitement or, like, fear, but it's just all all these things. It's, like it's so much larger than anything else. And I feel it like very physically in my body. If our religious listeners did not like the believe in God comparison, I think in a purely (laughs) religious context, I think every, like, you know, a lot of people know the road to Damascus story where, you know, the future St. Paul is traveling along the road and doesn't believe in God. And then like, you know, literally God comes out and like strikes him blind and starts talking to him. And this is about the closest to that, that I've experienced, I think is what Mitchell is saying. (laughs) 
There's also this like fear factor where it's sort of like, what's my place in this sort of post AI mm-hmm. future? How far does it go? Where does it stop? What should I like put my time into given it's advancing so quickly? So there's which, all these other like which, kind of visceral feelings. I feel like I've got let's, a, a, let's a year a and a half to finish and my novel. It. A little bit self-awarely on the on the irony there, which is like, as people in tech and crypto, this is like exactly the type of feeling we've been intentionally or unintentionally engendering in others when we're successful at what we're trying to do. So I do think it's like very funny to have you know the mirror turned back at us. Um, it'll be less funny if like you know it actually goes all the way and I lose my place in the world. But it's there, there's or the world there. at all. <laughs> Very good, guys. Awesome discussion. Yeah, All right. yeah let's. Um, we should, I think we should like wrap it there. Thanks for coming on, Jake. It was. I think you took us in a lot of interesting directions. Uh, really good to see what someone who's you know on the front of this in the sense of putting their money where their mouth is at the Web three crypto intersection, and I guess your time as well with what you've done with jargon and other stuff. Uh, just really good to see what you're thinking about it all. So thanks for coming on. I think everyone can, you know, find uh, Jake on Twitter at, I need to actually like, look well, up it'll be in the uh, show notes. J, J Brook, like J-B-R-U-K-H. We'll have it in the show notes. You can find him on Urbit at Ranter Tapper, spelled how it sounds. Um, and yeah, stay, you know, keep following him for both things he says and cool, uh, human language coding, uh, platforms that he puts out. <laughs> awesome guys. Thanks for having me. And, um, by the way, I'm super excited about where Herbit has, has, uh, has gotten to, it's starting to feel, uh, more and more like a real platform with apps, with composability, it's starting to get like a lot more usable. We're starting to see some, some growth metrics ticking up. So we'll and, be at Point Fund. And just, <laughs> and just when we got there, we had to reevaluate everything because of Sam. So, um, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> but, but it's okay because we're it's been at Point Fund. We're, we're investing on the intersection of Urbit and Web3 and AI, and it's all going to come together. It's going to be amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, we certainly hope so, and we'll try to make it happen. Great talking. Great conversation, awesome, and we'll, uh, we'll see everyone next time on the Network Edge. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Network Age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting, you know, great guests and giving you what you want. If you can just help us with a few things, Uh, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, Give us a good rating if you liked it. You know, hit that five stars. And our Twitters are in the show notes for me, Bitchell, and Nilrun. So follow us, retweet, promote the show, and we will keep giving you that amazing Network Age content that you love.